Good evening. Welcome again to everyone to the Intopia building here in Cambridge. And for those of you that can see one wall of it through the webcam online. For those of you that are new to CRCell, we are a department within the University of Cambridge. For 30 years, we've focused on driving change towards a sustainable economy, sustainable society. We do that through working with leaders and building leadership in business, government and finance. And we do that through education, both postgraduate and executive education, through our convening activities, through foresight and through innovation. We're really pleased to be hosting this event this evening together with the Club of Rome and welcoming Sandrine, who is the co-president of the Club of Rome. We're excited not only because the mission of the Club of Rome overlaps so well with the mission and objectives of CRCL, but because this book, Earth for All, is just such a timely book and it really moves forward a global conversation which has been happening for decades and which Sandrine will talk to us about. So it's a really important debate, perhaps the only important debate for us to have. The other reason we're really excited is because Sandrine was a very important member of CRCL's senior team for a long time and led some of our most cutting-edge initiatives, such as the Green Growth Partnership, which was conceived by her to bring together European environment ministers together with progressive private sector voices to drive forward the green agenda at the EU level, um, and she led what was then the Prince of Wales Corporate Leaders Group on Climate Change. And my own experience of working with Sandrine is that she is always someone who has known where the cutting edge of the debate is. And she has always been someone who has tried to push it further. Um, and for that reason, I think we will always think of her as a CISLer first. Um, <laughs> and co-president of the Club of Rome second. Because we like to think that's a very CISL trait. So... To introduce her formally, Sandrine has spent her career working with business leaders, policy experts, government and NGOs to tackle complex challenges. She's an expert facilitator for difficult conversations, which I hope this won't be this evening, and navigating between interwoven political and social structures and narratives. As I said, she's currently the co-president of the Club of Rome, also the chair of the European Commission Expert Group on Economic and Societal Impact of Research and Innovation. And of course, did I mention she's a CRCL senior associate? So how to introduce Sandrine's talk in this book? And I have to say that, as I said, it is a very timely book. And the best I can do is to really condense a quote from Teresa Rivera, the Deputy Prime Minister for Ecological Transition of the Spanish Government, which is in the book. And to paraphrase, she says, the choices we must make the prosperous lives on a livable planet are crystal clear. She says, so is the urgency to redress the imbalances of a broken economic model. Less clear is how to articulate the systems change needed, and it is here Earth for All comes to the rescue. And I just couldn't really set up Sandrine's lecture any better than those words. So I'm going to hand over to Sandrine for her guest lecture. So Sandrine, uh, over to you. Thank you so much, James. I, it's, it's a real pleasure to be here. As I was joking with James, I started my work at CISL on number one Trumpington Street. Now we're now at number one Regent Street. And for quite some time when I was here from 2009 to 2016, we talked about wanting to move into a sustainable building. So it's incredible to be here and to be with all of you. It's really a pleasure. And for all of you that are watching this lecture online, I'm very appreciative that you've joined me today. What I wanted to do was to start you off with a video which encapsulates a little bit the journey 
that the limits to growth to Earth for All has taken. For some of you who are not familiar with the limits to growth, it's the seminal report released in 1972. We celebrated the 50-year anniversary last year, commissioned actually by the Club of Rome to Dennis Meadows and his team at MIT. And this is where some of the new systems modeling was actually started. So we're going to start the video now. The Club of Rome is a group of scientists, humanists, educators, It's irritating that humanity has not listened to us, but they haven't. The warning bells were there already 50 years ago. The big difference is that now we truly are in the midst of the crises. We are much, much closer to potentially catastrophic outcomes. Now we have a short opportunity where everything is up in the air. We thought it was the time to now reassess to see what does science tell us today and how does the future look like the next 50 years. We have to change the story. We have to provide a plausible, coherent, consistent and also science-based and numbers-backed story that people find more attractive than business as usual. We have one scenario called too little, too late and then the other one is where we succeed in putting all those possibilities together. We are proposing five turnarounds paid for by the 10% richest people in the world. If we put in place the five turnarounds that we talk about, the focusing on inequality, the focus on poverty, the focus on empowerment, and then food and energy as the two key resources that will keep us alive as we're faced with some of these ongoing crises, then we actually could get ourselves out of this mess. And the interesting thing with these five turnarounds is that they can be scaled from communities to cities to sectors, nations, regions, and then globally. That's what we were looking for, like a fractal, set of fractals that escalate or percolate down from the global economic system all the way down to specific communities. We need to start with redressing, making sure that the solution is fair, is perceived as fair by a democratic majority. Unless we do so, we won't get a solution. It's critical we talk about poverty because the poorest in societies are the most vulnerable and face the biggest risks, as we can see with the, the flooding in Pakistan, and we can see with the food crisis in sub-Saharan Africa. It's absolutely critical that we use this as an opportunity to, to spur sustainable economic development. Currently, a large part of the world is materially, financially, economically insecure. And it is true when they're working, whether they're paid or unpaid, and it is true when they're not working. So a universal pension that guarantees affordable life is an essential part of this. So many women across the world 
their lives are dominated by the unpaid work they do. If you want healthy, sustainable, viable societies, the importance of recognizing the contribution of women and the rights of women is absolutely essential. It is really about ensuring that our societies are sustainable, that social reproduction occurs, and it's about ensuring that the rights of half the world's population are met adequately. Women must be given the freedom to make their own life choices. In the food system, we would see a rapid change towards more logistics that reduce the unnecessary food waste and food loss so that we have food security. I'm absolutely convinced that the Ukraine war will help us to accelerate the transition away from oil, coal and natural gas. So we could see an energy democracy where local sources, microgrids, local areas don't have to rely so much on the global fossil energy system. What we're facing is not an environmental crisis. It's a crisis of, of security, of stability, of prosperity and equity. And, and, and that's what Earth for All really brings forward. So the overall object of the latest report is basically to continue the fight. If sufficient mobilization occurs, and if the demand for major changes in economic strategy gets loud enough, then we can actually achieve a major turnaround. I'm fairly optimistic that we are going to see a very, very rapid transformation. But the question is, will it be fast enough? Now we need to come together and we need to share this image that a giant leap is truly possible. That comes back to a series of different structural shifts that we will have to make across the globe in order to ensure that we have truly an Earth for all. So that was a, a way to introduce you to, to Earth for All, a survival guide for humanity, but also to bring in the voices of the key authors. And as you indicated, James, one of my great pride and joys in working here at CISL was to start the Green Growth Group and to work through with now His Majesty the King, with so many progressive businesses. But probably my next biggest pride and joy has been this project, because the outcome has been a book, but the fact of the matter is that the program of work itself over the last two and a half years has been quite phenomenal. And actually, one of the authors is the original, from the original team of the Limits to Growth, Jürgen Randers, who also worked with me when we were both here at CISL as, as part of the faculty of some of the courses that we actually taught. What's phenomenal about where we are today and what I want to speak to you about is, first of all, we did know already 50 years ago through the scenario developments coming out of the limits to growth that cannot necessarily predict the future, but at least show different aspects of the future that tipping points were possible. We did see that if we continued to grow at the rate that we were growing from a population perspective, and have the pressures that we were putting on the finite planet that we call home, that we would start to very much live both social and environmental tipping points. And you can see that through the industrial output that only continued to grow. And by the way, the person who had this vision to commission this report was a business leader himself, Aurelio Pache, from Italy, very much clearly driven by what he saw 
as he traveled the world. So this did not come out of a think tank. It didn't come out of an academic institution. It was the vision of an entrepreneur. And I think that's very important. But you couple that with some of the incredible thinking that came from that MIT team, and in particular, the continuous thinking afterwards from Donella Meadows, for example, who started to show, and for over the last 50 years, we have seen the need to very much put in place First of all, an understanding of system dynamics and systems analysis, but also to look at those interrelationships and then think of key levers for change. What are those leverage points that can actually shift the bar? And that is what's so important today, because this is the wake-up call for the future that we want. As we moved into COVID, we realized at the Club of Rome, coming up to our 50th anniversary, of the limits to growth, that we needed to address the 21st century challenges before us, that we needed to see through where are those tipping points, what I would call the three Cs, obviously the compilation and the compound effect of climate, COVID, and conflict. What does that do in terms of our societies? Well, it's already created an economic reset if we already look at the impact that COVID has had. But let us not forget that as we've moved through value and chain disruption, and, and the Ukraine has been another reminder, another compound effect, that we also have seen the greatest transformation of our time as we went through COVID. We can look at each other now without masks on, but a year ago, we all had masks. We all went through massive vaccinations, and all of this has structurally demonstrated that actually governments have had to transform and that we have all had to transform in terms of the way in which we engage with our economies. So do not tell me that transformation is not possible. Do not tell me, and in particular policymakers, that it is too difficult to do. The question is, as we see the geopolitics, as we look at the difficult politics at play, as we also take into consideration the activism and the stress points, the fed upness of actually so many different parts of our societies, how can we put in place a vision that completely shifts into a vision of the future that has hope, but that is truly realistic as well? And that is why actually part of this process that we went through was to look at the different policies that we already have in place, such, for example, the European Green Deal, but to look at also the well-being economies who already have set up a very clear new economic model that is driven not just by consumption and productivity, but is actually looking at the juxtaposition of different indicators that are based on social, environmental and economic indicators. And that's why it's so important to think through that systems approach, coming back to the essence of the Club of Rome. The interconnected global instabilities are all actually linked. They cannot be delinked. Social system works with the economic system, the global commons and the political system. And those instabilities are creating then a multitude of compound effects that create the tipping points. So we have to address the social system and equality, but we also have to look at different demographics. In some places, population is growing. In other places, in particular in Europe, it's actually retracting. Looking at the economic system, the fact that we had huge mass unemployment, but now what does the future of work hold? And what is the economy 
as it's been completely over-financialized and you can actually get rid of 10,000 employees and yet your shareholder price goes up. That dysfunctionality where the economy no longer reflects the lives and livelihoods of people has to be taken into consideration. In particular, the links with the political system, the growing distrust. We can see that when Exxon actually releases its incredible profits, as it did last week, that we've got growing poverty and energy poverty in particular. And then how do you take into consideration the fact that we've already gone beyond six of the planetary boundaries? And how do you actually cost that? How do you place a value on nature in the same way that you place a value on human life? How do we do all of this? Part of this has been to talk about the elephant in the room. And that's what led us to thinking through Earth for All. That the international efforts to fight the climate crisis and other environmental crises continuously remain focused on technological solutions and supply side, and not on demand and consumption. Remember, that was the whole premise of the limits to growth. It wasn't that you have to stop growing. It was that you have to think through your patterns of growth and grow differently. Economic development is important. It just depends at what cost. Greening the supply side will not be enough to deliver targets set or address poverty and inequality. Thinking through the inherent wastefulness of our production, thinking through how we optimize our systems, and then looking at the essential questions of responsibility and equity. Because you can see in a neo-colonial model that the rich world is fueled by raw materials from elsewhere on the planet. I mean, this is so clear in terms of trade deficits, in terms of material deficits, in terms of our dependencies, what I call our unholy dependencies, whether it be gas in Russia or whether it be our material dependencies, which are creating deforestation, which are creating demineralization, which are making us go far beyond our planetary boundaries. And so this guiding framework of fair consumption is absolutely fundamental. How do we go from overconsumption, which is completely environmentally unsustainable, into an underconsumption phase without making it socially unstable? And I think that is also incredibly important. How do we divide up the limited remaining carbon budget? Who, whose needs need to be prioritized? And when we talk about needs within our economies in one country, as well as the juxtaposition and the dichotomy between the North and the South. And by the way, we don't talk about the South because we have to remember that the South is most of the world. We're a minute part of the world nowadays. How do we eliminate overconsumption while enabling everyone to consume enough to be healthy and safe? And we need to put fairness at the center of the climate debates. So the systems thinking starts also as to how we also look, in particular here when we talk about innovation at CISL, at the different types of sectors, but also our interrelationship with the economy. And that is the premise of Earth for All, a survival guide for humanity. Transformational economics for the 21st century. And there are a variety of different models, and we have remained agnostic. What we are saying through this book and in our conversations, even in talking to Kate Rayworth, a member of the Club of Rome, who started Donut Economics, and she has always said, Sandrine, we have to remain agnostic. Donut Economics is perfect for localities. 
The well-being economies have set up at the national level very similar types of thinking as a donut. The most important thing is that we need to account for social and environmental risk in financial and economic decision-making. That we need to expand our perspective of public goods and socialize the rewards of environmental and social commons. That we need to correct the inequity between the high and low-income countries created by international finance and trade systems. And that we increase the agency of women and workers to drive the direction of the economy. That the care economy, as we've seen through COVID, is not a parallel economy. It's one and the same of the existing economy. Because otherwise, this is what will happen. It's the social tipping points. And this is actually what was already shown through the limits to growth. The 2020s will see the fastest economic transition in history. And the question is, can we allow for technological disruption, market forces, political progress, and mass movements together to push us towards not just zero carbon, because that, by the way, most of the world claim that zero carbon is actually carbon apartheid. Okay, we got a problem with the phones going on here, guys. <laughs> Keep your phones close and stop texting. <laughs> zero carbon, zero loss of nature, zero poverty, zero pandemics. We have to think about moving in a series of zeros. And that is where we are in terms of Earth for All. The shift from the limits to growth, taking into consideration the planetary boundaries, moving into a very important conversation and quantifying and assessing the economic socio-biosystem dynamics and the impacts of what we call the extraordinary five areas within the Transformational Economics Commission. We set up a commission of 35 people from across the globe, decision makers, thought leaders, economists, who could stress test part of that system dynamic model and come up with then a clear idea of what would it take to get us to a well-being state taking into consideration the polycrisis, taking into consideration the compound effects of COVID, climate, and conflict. The optimal output, and you can see that this is incredibly complex, but that is system dynamic modeling. It's taking into consideration all the interrelationships between the complexities, the interrelationships between different systems in order to come up with potential pathways forward. And the novelties of this model is that we address inequality, ecology, public sector's role, finance, labor, population, and well-being all at the same time. That we look at the distributional effects in terms of owner and worker share of income and very much address the needs then of workers, looking both at universal basic dividend, but also thinking through what would be a minimum income for a worker globally. $15,000 annually is what we're stating. We include the wider effect of the human economy on the main planetary boundaries. We take into consideration the ecosystem shifts and the impacts that we see from the planetary boundaries. We model an active public sector with public infrastructure. This is a lot of this work done by Mariana Matsukato. And by the way, the planetary boundaries, of course, and you saw Johan Rockström, who is the father of the planetary boundaries, who is one of the key authors of this book. We take into consideration the importance of finance. What does that look like? At the international level, looking at a restructuring of the IMF and also the World Bank, but also thinking through special drawing rights, 
debt cancellation, what types of new relationships do we create between most of the world and the West? We look at labor, we look at population growth, and of course, we are constantly thinking through what does well-being mean in the 21st century. And in fact, what we try to do is quantify the feedback loop so that we're moving towards a well-being index, ensuring that we've got the fundamental needs met by most people across the globe, that we have people that are safe and healthy in their communities, and that is the link, obviously, with climate change as well as biodiversity loss, that we look at the fair distribution of the commons and wealth. So what does public spending look like? Everyone is focused on delivering shared well-being. This comes back to what is the real definition of a just transition, not just some words, which often we feel now that the just transition is the new sustainability, completely overused. No one knows what it means. <laughs> Owner incomes after tax and worker incomes after tax. And then participation. How do we actually bring in people on this journey? What does it look like? We have to remember that the Club of Rome was accused, and still, I get some incredible emails, let me tell you. We are conspiracy theorists. We were the doomsday club. We always talked about limits to growth. We were forcing people to stop having babies. <laughs> Every single possible accusation for a club that in the end pretty much predicted where we would be today. Why? Because of fear, because people don't want to hear the truth. But we knew that we would have to create and explain our thinking in a publication that would be easily accessible, where we would have storytelling and very clear visions of two different scenarios, not to be too complex. We had one future, one choice, but two scenarios. One which is the too little, too late scenario. Basically, what if we continue on our current, current destructive path? And the other which is the giant leap scenario. What if we achieve the fastest economic transition in history? And what does that look like? And we do that in the book also by depicting the lives of four women, starting off as young girls, in four different continents, and what their lives look like in comparison to these two scenarios. Here's the too little, too late scenario. And sorry to tell you all that that's where we are today. This is the business as usual. Even with all our wonderful, supposed, ambitious targets with regard to greenhouse gas emissions reductions, we are nowhere where we need to be. And the problem is that we have poverty which reaches zero around 2100, far too late. In fact, you will see that most of our predictions indicate that it is the social tipping points that will actually be much graver than the environmental tipping points. So the societal tensions continue to increase, and the global average temperatures also continue to increase. And that compilation spells disaster. So you can see that the main trends are that population only starts to decrease after 2040, that the social tension only starts to decrease also after 2040, closer to 2050, and it still doesn't decrease fast enough. And all of the inequalities and the fact that average well-being continues to go down, you can also see that the human footprint continues to go up as well during that period. Whereas the giant leap scenario, and it doesn't seem like it's a huge difference, but 50 years is pretty important if it actually generates more wars and more conflict than we are ready for, including climate migration and everything else. So poverty reaches zero around 2050 in the giant leap scenario, which is much faster 
you can use this as the narrative as well. We move towards zero carbon, but by the same token, we decrease poverty. So no, we're not talking about carbon apartheid. We're actually talking about a new vision that is green and social. Well-being rises and temperature stabilizes at below two degrees C. These are the key turnarounds. Address poverty, address inequality, address empowerment, address food and energy together and create an optimization of all five by stimulating and looking at nexus points between them, ensuring that we very much look at the first three as well, because they're absolutely fundamental. Remember that most of us, and I do work in the climate field, tend to focus mostly here. That's not where we're going to win this. It's here and here and on empowerment. Because what happens then is that we reduce the global social tension. We start to see that well-being actually goes up and social tension goes down. And that is fundamental. And this comes out of our index. And we see it across the board in terms of the too little too late scenario and the giant leap scenario with regard to the inequality index. So across the globe, and by the way, I grew up in Silicon Valley, and I can tell you that right now the inequality in particular in San Francisco is incredibly bad. We have the highest homelessness that we've ever had, and we have huge mental illness issues and drug abuse. So this is not just about inequality between, again, most of the world and ourselves. It's about growing inequality within the wealthiest areas of the globe. And what happens? Inequality reduces trust, full stop, across the board. Wage inequality in the US has increased by 14% between 1970 to 2010. And at the same time, surveys of US citizens shows decreasing levels of trust in people. This is happening again, also potentially across Europe now with energy poverty. And the great worry is that we'll have an increase of populism. So the links between inequality, trust, and destabilization within your democracies is huge. And that's what we call the critical feedback loop. The fact that the level of social tension continues to grow if you don't take into consideration inequality. So you have to think through how you deal with people, how you work with people. The beauty of the well-being economies, and by the way, apologies, but most of them are driven by women, is that they do look at these factors right away. And that they do communicate to people. If you look at the way in which they actually communicated, in particular, Nicola Sturgeon to a certain degree, and you may or may not like her, but the fact of the matter is that when you cry with people and you indicate that your pain is my pain, they appreciate that. That's where we need to go. Also, in putting in place the right policy frameworks that ensure, and taxation frameworks, that we're looking at equality and driving a reduction of poverty. What we've done is we've taken those system dynamic models and thought through then, OK, well, what would be then the energy equality interrelationship? What does that actually look like? And we're living it right now. That's the fascinating bit. I mean, this is the current context across our countries. And you can see it here in the streets in London and the protests that we're seeing from a variety of different parts of our society. That's why we start talking about the citizen fund. 
because for us, and this is all around a universal basic dividend, but also thinking through how can you build that trust? How can you also think through what is the responsibility of each citizen, including multinationals and directors of big enterprises who then need to be part of the taxation structure. Hence why we actually released a letter, which was in the FT and in Forbes, clearly indicating that it was time to tax the rich when we were at Davos. And that Biden is actually now starting to talk about the same thing. And the whole idea of a citizen fund is that you get rid of the perversities in the market. You start to truly bring the economy back to people, servicing people, planet and prosperity. And you think through, well, what does that mean then in terms of who do we tax? Where do we get the dividends? How do we address the global commons? Because by the way, they're reaping the benefits, whether it be oil, gas or minerals. But most people are not seeing those benefits. In fact, they're getting poorer and experiencing energy poverty when we see the profits of Exxon and all the others go through the roof. That no longer works, should never have worked in the first place, and those neo-colonial relationships need to be changed. This is not just a book in English. This is a book which we have tried, and, and by the way, much to our surprise, and I was speaking to someone who actually has read the book, so it's lovely to know that some of you have read the book. This has gone way beyond our aspirations in terms of readership. In the last four months, we've sold more books than we thought, 100,000, it's gone out of print four times, 700 articles in 50 countries. It's been translated already in English, German, Japanese, Italian, and coming up Chinese, Swedish, Spanish, French, Hebrew, Norwegian, and probably more. And the reason also, I think, is that we've hit a nerve and hopefully, we can continue to really drive this as a movement. The three pillars of this program of work, and that's why I'm so proud, started with the system dynamic modeling. The translating that modeling into real life experience by working with 35 incredible commissioners, economists who are working across different countries and moving now into this third pillar, which is making it a movement. We are putting together a simulator. We will be doing some gaming. We've got others who want to create children's books. We've got a documentary film that might be coming out. This is not just to toot our own horn and say, oh, wonderful, we're all going to be in a documentary film on Netflix. No, it's, you have to understand, I came from, again, I'm a conspiracy theorist, doomsday advocate, and no one is going to like this book or they'll trash it immediately because they're too scared of the rationale behind it into now a world where it's really resonating. And that's a wonderful feeling. And so we will continue to build on how we actually translate this into other people's voices, into a narrative that brings more people on the journey, including citizen assemblies, working with a variety of different sectors, different parts of society, but also giving our recommendations to policymakers. So as Donella Meadows, one of the key leaders of the MIT team working with Dennis said, there is too much bad news to justify complacency, but there's too much good news to justify despair. We're not the doomsday club. This is a vision, a positive vision of where we can get to with a lot of realism. It's not pie in the sky. It's actually real. And we can all be part of Earth for All, a survival guide for humanity. Thank you.